All right, good to see everyone this morning. Let's turn to Luke chapter 21 just by way of review. To review what we have studied, particularly last week, we pivoted. Last week, we pivoted from studying kind of the generic. Oh, okay. Hey, Phil, can you turn on Zoom? Okay, just hit that meeting on the the Choice Hills meeting. Okay. Uh, we what we did is we pivoted from studying the the prophetic and kind of the generic term or the generic doctrine of the coming of the Lord, uh, in reference especially to the second coming of Christ. I, I know some of these ter- these terms are a little bit confusing or can be, because when you're talking about the second coming of Christ. Uh, like, uh, for instance, if I was to say, what is the second coming of Christ? Even within this room, even though we've been studying it, this is the 14th week we've studied this. Um, even though that's the case, even in this room, people would give different answers as to what the second coming of Christ is. And uh, some of you would say, and all of you would, would be correct. Some of you might say the second coming of Christ is the rapture. Some of you might say the second coming of Christ is when Jesus comes to judge. Some of you might say that second coming of Christ is when Jesus comes to set up his kingdom. Uh, he comes in the clouds. He comes with his saints and all these different things that we've studied. Uh, but the, the reality is all of those things are true at once. And um, so let's pray and then we'll look at, look at Luke 21 just as a, as a review. And then we're going to spend some time in 1 Thessalonians today. All right. Luke 21, let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity to study your word. Thank you for all the the people that are here that have come with a desire to learn your word. I pray that you would fill that desire and that you would teach us by your spirit, by your word, that you would help us to understand. And Lord, not just that we would fill our heads with knowledge, although we're thankful for that, but that knowledge would affect our lives and the way we live, the way I live. And so, Lord, I ask that you would work in the hearts of each and every one of us and guide us in our study. Help us, Lord, to say and, and study the things that you want us to study and, uh, and put off the things that maybe you don't want us to study this time. I pray for your, your guidance and wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke 21, uh, I do want to give a little bit of a warning, okay? Um, especially as we start getting into the rapture of the church. Um, there is, uh, what, you, what you find is as you study these, these doctrines, these issues, what you find is there is a tendency among some people to, uh, to take the different doctrines of the Bible, different verses, and to make them, now follow me, I'll explain myself, but try to follow, to make them generic. What do I mean by generic? In other words, you think about generic, you, I, I think about food and Doritos, right, or Cheez-Its. Those are my favorite things to eat. And I know others in here like those things too. But, of course, you have, uh, you have generic Doritos, and the, which are not Doritos, and then you have Doritos Doritos, and they're different. And uh, some people, when they look at doctrines of the Bible, they say, well, 
they see something like the coming of the Lord, or they see something like, uh, like the saints, a term like the saints, and they automatically, they automatically assume that every mention of that is talking about the same thing. They automatically assume that every time the coming of the Lord is mentioned, it must be, and because the same words are used, it must be referring to the same thing with little regard for anything around it, right? Anything that adds to it or might color what's being, what's being meant, right? And that's kind of what we're doing. We're kind of dissecting these different passages to see the different facets so that we know what's being spoken of. And so, uh, that, but, but uh, with, with some of these people, they take something like uh, the coming of the Lord and they, they, take, they take every passage or verse that deals with the coming of the Lord and they try to force what it says into a paradigm so that every reference is talking about the same thing. But the problem with doing that is when you force every passage into, into a mold and into a pattern, it, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. So what it's better to do is to acknowledge that the same words are being used, maybe the same subject is being spoken of, but to also acknowledge the differences. To also acknowledge the differences. Let me give you an example. In uh, Matthew chapter 24, we studied, I hope you all remember, we studied uh, the passage dealing with the, the coming of the Lord, and specifically we saw a, a portion where the Bible says that the Lord would send His angels and would gather his elect from the four winds. You guys remember that? Kind of give me a, a little nod, even if you don't. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so they see, gather his elect from the four winds, and then they look at something like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and because they have this idea that every reference to that concept must be the same thing, they attempt to force it all into one. But see, the problem with that is it creates issues. It creates problems. And I don't know if you would say contradictions, but it creates problems. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about, and then we'll get into uh, in our study here. <clears throat> Think about the Exodus, okay? Did God lead the children of Israel out of Egypt? Right? Yes. So if I were to say... Thank you, student. If I were to say God led the children of Israel out of Egypt, you know, that's a very broad, that's one sentence, that's a very broad statement. Now, is that statement true? Is that statement true? But what is not in that statement, which is also true? That it took 40 years? That their, their route out of, out of Egypt was not direct? It doesn't include any of the facets that happened, but it just kind of summarizes that fact. So when we say Jesus is coming for his saints, we, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't specify a whole, uh, uh, many other things that are relevant, right? So that's often, and often just as a matter of interpretive good practice, when you look at a passage of the Bible, you got to realize that sometimes God just makes broad statements that are true without specifying all the, all the details. Now, we want all the details. <laughs> we want all the details every time. But sometimes God just says, Jesus is coming. Be ready. Or we'll hear a trumpet sound, but 
And, and then they look at every other passage, and this is how, this is how inter- interpreters do it. Do they not? They, they see a mention of a trump, for instance, a trumpet in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 with the coming of, of Christ for, the, for, the, uh, for believers. And they look at every other passage that deals with, tru- with a trumpet, not trump, sorry, deals with a trumpet, and they force it, and they say it's the same thing. It's the same thing. It must be the same thing without regard for any other consideration. But the fact that there's a trumpet sound when Jesus comes for his saints doesn't specify, doesn't, doesn't neglect or, or negate that there could be other, other events similar to that in other parts of history. And so that's what we're trying to look at. That's why we're trying to study these things. So Luke chapter 21 Verse 34 says, And take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life, so that, so that, uh, so that they come upon you unawares. For as a snare shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Now, let, let's just clarify something. What is the purpose of the tribulation? For this context, number one, it brings Israel, it's designed to bring Israel back to God, and especially faith in Christ. What's the second cause? Say again. It's the judgment of God upon the earth, okay? Now, that's what this is spoken of in in, in, uh, Luke 21, verse 35. Notice what 36 says, "'Watch ye therefore and pray always.'" that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things, we discussed that, that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. So even in the passage where the Lord Jesus himself, while he was on earth, dealt with the coming judgment that, pre, that, that is the prelude to his appearance and, and his setting up his kingdom, even in that context, the Lord, at a minimum, makes a statement that it is possible to escape all of those judgments, right? Even if you don't believe the timeline that we lay out and that we believe the Bible teaches, it does say that escape is possible of all those things, okay? And that is key. That is key to understanding it. So what that does is that opens a can of, of, of doctrine, and so it automatically, it should be like, well, okay, how do you escape? I don't want to be in that, those judgments before the Lord comes. I don't want to experience that. Jesus said, okay, there's a way to escape. At a minimum, that's what he's saying. All right, so let's look at 1 Thessalonians <clears throat> chapter 1. Chapter 1. <clears throat> now, First and Second Thessalonians, of course, were two letters that were written by Paul to the church in Thessalonica, which is not how it's pronounced today, but that's how we say it. Um, these letters are related. One of the major themes in First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians is the coming of the Lord. And in fact, every single chapter in these two books mentions in some way, fashion, or form the coming of the Lord. So this is a major theme, a major theme when it comes to the coming of Christ. Now, 
Before we get into 1 Thessalonians, we're going to start in chapter 1, verse 10. What I want to do is I want to use this, uh, because I don't want anyone to be confused as to the timing, I created this this, uh, graphic to help us understand kind of the timing that we're looking at. Let me establish a couple of things. Uh, let me establish a couple of things to help uh, to, to kind of clear the field a little bit, all right? We believe that the Bible teaches in the premillennial return of Christ. What do I mean by that? Can anybody give me a definition of that? The premillennial return of Christ. David. Millennium and and the millennium is. Does anybody, can anybody give me a definition of the millennium? A thousand years of what? Okay, the thousand year, literal thousand year reign of Christ's personal reign and rule of the earth on the earth and of the earth. Uh, one thousand, a literal rule. Now, if you're a, a lot of uh, a lot of denominations. Presbyterians in particular, and Roman, Roman Catholicism, as far as their eschatological views, they do not believe and they do not teach in a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ. They would be amillennial, non-millennial, which is they believe that basically the church is a figurative kingdom of Christ on the earth now, and that a 1,000 years that the Bible refers to, is, is just kind of a figurative sense of a long period of time, okay? So the, and most of them believe that at the end of this age, Jesus will come back and that'll be basically the end of the world and that's it, okay? That is not the position our church teaches and that's not the position, more importantly, it's not the position that the Bible teaches. The Bible says, the Bible teaches in a literal 1,000 year reign of Christ on the earth physically yet to come. Now, within that, you take, and that's what this describes here. In that, among premillennialists, almost all premillennialists, like we, like we, we are, teach that there is a specific period of tribulation that is yet to come that will lead up to the second advent of Christ. Second advent, second coming. When I say second coming... I'm referring to when Jesus comes to establish that kingdom, okay? When he comes in judgment to establish that kingdom. Now, what this is, so we can just lay that to the side. If you are premillennial, not you, but if if a person is premillennial, generally speaking, almost all of them will believe in the idea of the tribulation, a literal period of judgment right before Jesus comes back, okay? That's... That's not, that's not debated. That's not a real, a real debate. Some post-millennialists or post-tribulation people would debate that the tribulation is very specific in its time. But put that aside for, for now. Okay, so basically, let me get over here so I don't block, so, uh, block the, the screen for Miss Karen and her mom. So basically what you have here is you have a, 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 a diagram where This represents the cross. This represents all the time since the cross, which we call the church age. And this, of course, that's, uh, you know, that's not to scale. (laughs) But this represents the beginning of the tribulation. 
the seven-year, approximately seven-year tribulation. And this represents the end of that, at which time Christ comes in his second advent to judge and set up his kingdom. Clear as mud? All right, so that's pretty clear. And at that point begins the millennium. Now, these things are, I mean, there's, uh, I'm just summarizing it here. There's, you know, the exact times and stuff is not, it's not exactly precise to the men or anything like that. So this is just for illustration. Okay. What is also believed, and, and there's no debate about, is that this period of seven years is divided approximately in half. We've already discussed that. Okay. So what I have here is not debated. Every, pretty much every premillennialist who believes in the literal thousand-year reign of Christ believes in this, pretty much, okay? That Jesus will come, and after the tribulation of judgment, and then he'll set up his kingdom and go into the millennium, all right? Is that, is that pretty clear? Okay, here's where the debate starts. There are three positions this is the first position. This is called the pre-tribulation position. And this basically teaches that the church, that's you, that's me, that's believers of this age, the church age, which is a distinct body. Okay, let, let me pause here, and I, I, gotta, I gotta make this clear, okay? You remember I, when I first started, I said there's a, some people try to make when they come across a doctrine in the Bible, they just try to make it generic and they take every reference to that thing and make it all one thing, one big glob, right? Well, one of the ways they do that is in the idea of the saints. And the saints are the people of God. And so what people will do, interpreters, and I'm talking about people who write commentaries that are a lot smarter than me, what they will do is they'll take the Old Testament saints like David and Moses and, and those and New Testament saints like Paul and you and I, as well as people that have not yet been saved in the future, haven't yet believed in Christ, and they just lump them all together into one group and say, well, they're just the saints. Well, that's all fine and good, and it's, there's a general truth to that. But the problem is when you, get, when, you, when you make that one group and you start looking at eschatology, which is what we're doing, then you start to develop problems. And besides that, we know that the people of Israel are the people of God. The church is the people of God. But we also know there are distinctions. For instance, the church is not only Israel. The church is also made up of non-Jews. And the church is spoken of as a distinct group, not the same as Israel, right? And so that even though Israel is the people of God, the New Testament says that, but yet, the church is a distinct group. Are they both the people of God? Yes. Are they the same group? No. So they're both true at the same time. The Old Testament saints, New Testament saints are the people of God. True. The church and the Old Testament saints are different. Also true. You see? It's a little more complicated and a little more, uh, a little less generic than one might uh, think at the beginning, okay? That's just an example. This is the position of our church, and this is the position that I believe the Bible teaches plainly, and I, I hope to show you this. This position states that the church, the people of God of this time, will be, 
will be snatched out of this world for the purpose of protecting them from the coming judgment of the tribulation. Okay? Before that period ever begins. Okay? The second... Uh, the second... position is this one. This is called the mid-tribulation position. The mid-tribulation position teaches that the church or the people of God or a generic group of believers will live through the first part of the tribulation but will be raptured out approximately in the middle. But where that happens is, is a subject of debate. So this position, mid-tribulation, is also called pre-wrath, because it's a little bit, it varies. Pre-wrath means those people would say that this part of the tribulation is the part where the wrath of God is poured out. Some people would put it here. Some people would put it here. The point being is that Christians will live through the period, the first part of the Antichrist, and then at some point before God pours out his wrath, then the church will be raptured. Okay? And then you have the final position. Actually, this is not the final position. Then you have the post-tribulation position, which apparently, from what I've heard, this position is actually more and more people are liking this. And I'll tell you the reason. This is more generic. This, is, this position fits when you want to try to shove everything into one little box with little regard for the differences. All right. Basically, this position says that people that believe uh, the, the, the believers of this time will go through the whole tribulation until the very end, at which time, right before Jesus returns in his second advent, the church or, or the, they will be raptured out. OK. Um, now. There is one other position. I did not write it on here because there's not really any way to do it. The other position is called a partial rapture, which basically means you'll be raptured at some point if you're right with God. That's basically what. And it, I mean, what better, what better doctrine to invent? A billy club to beat people. You better be careful. You'll get left behind. You better make sure you're coming to church and giving, you know, your tithes. You know, that kind of thing. That's, what's that? I don't know. Yeah, I, actually, that's right. They're, they do overlap a little bit. So this is, um, of course, this is, this is our position. This is the position I believe the Bible plainly teaches. And I hope to show you this plainly. All right, let's turn to 1 Thessalonians, if you would. Chapter 1. Now, this point right here, I want to ask you a question. When Jesus takes the church, let me ask you a question. Is that the coming of the Lord? This is where we have to define our terms clearly. Is that the coming of the Lord? We say, some of you are shaking your head. Some of you are like, well, maybe. The answer is both. Okay, you know why I say that? Because in a verses we'll read in just a minute, it actually says the coming of the Lord. First Thessalonians chapter 4, when those are asleep at the coming of the Lord, 
All right, so this you can say, this is the coming of the Lord. That's true. Now, is that the second advent? No. There's a different purpose. But really, from my point of view, as, as the way I view it, the coming of the Lord proper is this point. And this is a precursor. This is when, like, for instance, if you were standing on top of a hill and you have a boulder and, and you're going to push the boulder down the hill, that first shove and when it starts to roll once or twice as it starts to go down the hill, that's like right here. But it's really just one, long, one kind of long event that culminates with his coming. But, so I consider all of this the coming of the Lord. It's just, it's all kind of in process until it culminates. Yes, yeah, Zach. Well, there's seven years of time. Yeah, we're going to see that in just a minute. We're going to see where, where we are. Okay, First Thessalonians chapter 1, look at verse 8. <clears throat> verse 8. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place, your faith to Godward is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now look at verse 10. And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us, from the wrath to come. Okay, let's examine this verse real quick. First of all, it says to wait for his son. Let me establish this. To wait for Christ himself, to wait for Christ, that is part of the Christian's hope. Okay? We are, according to this verse and others, we are not expecting or looking for other events. We are waiting for Jesus. Okay, this is, this is one of the problems. With this position. Now, I know that people that hold this position would say, well, I'm waiting on Jesus because Jesus is going to come and take us out at the end of the tribulation. They would say they're waiting on Jesus. But from our perspective, if the post-tribulation position is correct, that means Christians of our time, you and me, have a great deal, a great number of major events between now and that time, like the Antichrist, severe persecution, the mark of the beast, all of the judgments, uh, and all of those things must happen before, according to this position, before Jesus comes to take us out of here. Okay? Now, the problem with that is that speaking naturally, you could say you're waiting for Jesus, 
but you're really waiting for the Antichrist. And you're really waiting for these judgments. Now you could, if you think about something, something that happened, this is going to happen. If you just think into the future and something that's going to happen in your life, for instance, say you're, say you're, say you know that you're getting married, you know, you're getting married a week from now, but you know that before you get married, you're looking forward to getting married, but you also know that you're going to have a car accident in this next period of time, this next week, you're going to have a car accident. And you also know that, you know, your house is going to burn down in the next week. Now, you're looking forward to getting married, and that's all great and fine, but I'm just saying, if you know you're going to have a car accident, you know your house is going to burn down, you've got other things on your mind than getting married. Does you understand what I'm saying? So, if you knew those terrible things were that lied between... This, grant, this event that you hope for and expect, then your mind's going to be on those things. But this verse says, we're waiting for his son from heaven. Now, I'm not saying this is a definitive verse. This is not the definitive verse when it comes to this, this issue. But what I'm trying to tell you is we are waiting for Jesus. We're not waiting for the Antichrist. We're not waiting for judgments. We're not waiting for marks of beasts. We're not looking at we're not trying to discern numerology and figure out what the mark of the beast is. We're not looking for that. We're looking for Jesus, right? That is what the Christian is hoping for. Okay? That's the first thing I want you to see. And really, this question, this question, upon what is the Christian waiting? Upon what is the Christian waiting? The answer to that question will affect your life big time. There are people that believe that we're, we're, the, we're expecting the Antichrist, the revelation of the Antichrist, and all that goes along with that. And you know what they're doing? They're prepping. They're getting bunkers ready, and they're storing food, and they're taking their money out of the bank or whatever, you know, whatever they're trying to do, because they're expecting that the Antichrist is going to bring this great persecution and there's going to be cataclysmic events. And let me tell you something. Their position on this matter, whether they're pre-trib or post-trib, determines whether they believe whether, what, they're, what they're hoping for and waiting on. And that, in turn, affects the way they live their life. It's just a fact. If you're waiting on the Antichrist... If I was waiting on those kinds of judgments, I'd want to be prepared to, to help shield my family from those terrible things that are, that are set to come to pass, that God has already told us are going to come to pass. I mean, that would worry me. Would it not worry you? Of course. But I'm not waiting for that. Right? So, but those that are, you know, what you find is it overlaps with a prepper mentality. It overlaps. I'm not saying every person that believes... This is a prepper, but it overlaps. Sometimes on the radio, I hear this guy with this deep voice. He'll come on there like, Patriot Supply, be ready for your family in case, you know, it's like they want you to buy like, you know, five gallon buckets of nasty food that'll last for 30 years. I'm sure it's healthy, uh, you know, to, but notice what it's called. Patriot Supply. So what does that tell you? Some of this stuff overlaps. 
with a sense of nationalism that is not biblical, right? They think that, 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 that it kind of overlaps. Listen, we don't get on every little, every little train, every little uh, train car that sounds just, just right. No, we, we believe the Bible, right? The Bible. And that's, that's where our faith lies. And so, and those things will affect, uh, you, know, you know, some people that believe this, they may, I've heard them make the accusation that, oh, we're just holding out, waiting on Jesus to come and save us. That's what they say. That's how they characterize what we're doing. No, I'm not holding out, waiting on Jesus to come save me like I'm on a life raft or something. No. That's what I'm expecting. I'm expecting Jesus to come, right? He could come today, right? That's what I'm expecting. I'm not expecting all these other things and just hoping Jesus is going to show up to save me from it. No, I'm not. He's already told me to wait for him. All right, look at verse 10 again. Whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, notice this, which delivered us, that's past tense, from the wrath to come. What is the wrath to come? The wrath to come. Now, you, someone might say, well, this is just talking about people dying and going to hell. And if you look at the cross-references of your Bible, that might be what it references. This, first of all, I want you to see that this is the wrath yet future. See, it says the wrath to come. So this is not talking about a, the danger of a person dying and going to hell. That's present. This is talking about the wrath yet to come. Now, look at chapter 5. Hold your place here and look at chapter 5 and verse number 9. It says this. We will look at chapter 5 in a minute, but I just want to point out the use of the term here. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, reading in the context of this, which we will later, reveals that the wrath being spoken of is the wrath of his second advent when he comes in judgment, right? That's what the context of chapter 5 is. So the wrath in chapter 1, the Bible says Jesus has, has delivered us, past tense, from the wrath that is yet future. This is, in context, a reference to the coming of Christ in his second advent in judgment. And this is, the, this is one of the reasons why we believe that Jesus is going to take us out of here before the wrath starts. Okay? This is one of the reasons. But as a side note, I've said this before and I will say it again, because a lot of people, I'm not sure about people in here, but a lot of people who have believed in Christ live in fear. Live in fear that a mean old God upstairs is just, is just has it out for them and is just waiting on them to mess up so that he can throw them into hell. Here's what I want you to understand. Not only has God saved us through Christ, not only has he saved us from eternal damnation and condemnation from, because of sin. Not only has he saved us from hellfire, 
he has also saved us from future wrath that he's going to bring in this world. I'll say it again. God does not have it out for you. He is not waiting on an opportunity to destroy you and me as his children. He has provided for us such that we will escape that. This is why I spent so much time explaining that the tribulation is a time of God's wrath being poured out. Because doctrinally speaking, for, the, for, for you and I to be living and experiencing that great period of God's wrath is contradictory to our position and place in Christ. God is not angry with us. Listen, you, what you ought to do, what I ought to do, is we ought to stop. I'm almost out of time, so we're probably not going to get any further than this. I'm sorry. What you and I ought to do is we ought to stop and meditate on this. God is not angry with me. I stand and you stand in the grace of God. He only has goodwill toward us. You say, well, what if I sin? Okay, what about your children? When Robert, does Robert, does Robert sin? He does. Now, whether Robert's of the age where he does so volitionally and with full knowledge of the consequence, I don't know. But Robert does sin. My kids, my older kids sin. And they do so volitionally with knowledge. Are they not in the grace of their father as a result? No. They are still in the grace of their father. I do not have any desire to harm them because they are in a safe condition. They are not in. We are not under the wrath of God, period. Period. And that's one of the foundational truths that helps throw light upon this question. Are Christians under the wrath of God, or can they be under the wrath of God or not? And actually, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians actually bring that into clear focus. And that's one of the foundational truths. You're not under the wrath of God. He has delivered you. There are terrible things coming, but that's not for you because you're not under his wrath. And several times in First and Second Thessalonians, he says that very thing. He says that very thing. All right, we are out of time. So I do not have time to go into the next chapter. So we will pick up there next week, Lord willing.